Hi, I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome to episode six of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. <laughs> Why have you added that bit in? Because I thought it sounded more <laughs> professional. <laughs> As if. Okay, welcome to Seeing Red, episode six. Yeah, fine. Um, so we're, we were just saying, weren't we? We're a mm-hmm. month in now. Month in, six episodes in. I'm, yeah, I'm really I'm shocked. proud of this. And we hit a bit of a milestone this week. We did. Because... Um, 10,000 downloads. Absolutely incredible. So thank you, everybody who's been listening. It's... Can you believe that we're at 10,000? Yeah, honestly, it still blows my mind that like it's not just my friend that's listening. It blows my mind that we've even got you know just one person that yeah. we don't know that listens to us. And I remember when we were uh, when we were sort of talking about setting a podcast up, we literally said that we said if we just get one person mm-hmm. that listens to it and enjoys it, we'd, we'd it'd be worthwhile. We'd be really yeah, pleased. And exactly. to know that we've had 10,000 downloads is just mental, really. It's absolutely incredible. And Obviously, if anybody has any feedback for us, that sort of thing, we are still new, so we still really appreciate it. We really hope that you can hear the difference today because we're recording with our new mic. We certainly are. So, fingers crossed, we are in a room with no furniture. So, um, I don't know whether it's still going to be a bit echoey. I don't know. And I think the echoes might be the room. Okay. But then we'll, we'll just see. We'll, we'll see, yeah. We'll Hopefully, record. again, there might be an improvement next yeah. week. And we'll just keep recording in different places until we find the perfect. Yeah. Perfect spot. So, what what are you telling us about today, Mark? So, for this week's episode, I'm going to take you back to 2003. Love it. Um, so, I think I'd have been 20 then, and you'd have been a mere child. I would have been 14. 14. Isn't that ridiculous? God. Um, and it's quite a momentous year, so I wanted to provide a bit of context, take you back that far. So, it was 15 okay. years ago. Um, so, in 2003, um, Vladimir Putin visited the UK for the first time ever. What was he then? Was he the president? He was head of state. Oh, okay. And it was, for any history buffs out there that might be interested, it was the first visit from a Russian head of state to the UK since Tsar Nicholas II. Ooh. Kind of probably like 80 years before. So um, Russian-UK relations were definitely sort of on the up, which definitely oh, can't be said. Um, today. like nowadays. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Um, it was also the year in which Ian Huntley was found guilty in the Soham murder case mm-hmm. and he was sentenced to life in prison. I know that we've, we've talked about cases like this featuring mm-hmm. child murder and we did say that we didn't really want to go there. Yeah. I, have I still one. feel like that. I've got... Um, Holly's dad's book, the one that says like Dear Holly. I've got that to uh, yeah. read on my yeah. holiday, so I will be reading that. Um, yeah. My friend Steph lent me it. I'm not saying we'll never venture into those it's cases, a but one, isn't it? yeah, I just yeah. don't know. I don't like talking about when it's a child. I don't, and I think some of the subjects we cover as it is are quite disturbing. Um, so if we really hunted for really disturbing ones, I don't know whether it would have a bit of an impact on us. Mm. Maybe I'm just being a bit of a pussy, I don't know. Yeah, but we, we're, both, we're both a bit of a pussy. But I think sometimes as well it's how respectful you can be, and sometimes that's difficult as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Possibly. Yeah, we always strive to, to be compassionate to the victims' mm. families. Um, we always endeavour to do that, but yeah, we are only human, so um, there are some comments that you might make that could be taken the wrong way. I really wouldn't want to upset anybody. Mm. Um, okay, so it was also the year in which troops from the US, the UK, Australia and Poland invaded Iraq. Mm. So it was the start of the Iraq war. Yeah. And that latter point lays the foundations for today's episode because I'm going to be covering the death of Britain's leading weapons expert of the time, Dr. David yeah. Kelly. Amazing. That'd be really interesting. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking he committed suicide and this is a true crime podcast. So why is he being featured? But 
hopefully you'll be able to make your own mind up at the end of it because I strongly believe that he was murdered uh, by the government. Mm. It's my own opinion. But it's a good old conspiracy, also, which we love. I love conspiracy, definitely. And especially if it involves the government because apparently I haven't put myself on enough watch list by insulting <laughs> the Queen. Also, um, technically though, I don't obviously not anymore, but wasn't suicide it used to be a crime? Yeah, it did long, so, long time so ago. Not then. I guess, I guess Just so. Not right now. <laughs> um, if you're not convinced by the end of the episode that it was murder and you do think it was suicide, well, my apologies. Normal service will resume next week when we'll have something uh, probably a bit more straightforward. Um, probably will sort of give a bit of a warning as well because in order to cover this case in the depth that I need to cover it in, there are quite a, a few sort of political references. I do need to go into some mm. detail around the Iraq War. Are we going to get bored? Because you're going to be talking I about don't think so. I think <laughs> I think some of it's quite interesting. No, I think it will be interesting. And I won't actually. I won't go into loads of it in loads and loads of detail. This really isn't a case that I know a lot about as well, so it'd be really interesting to hear. I remember it happening. I, I remember it happening 15 years ago, and I was convinced then, mm-hmm. and I'm more convinced now that it was murder. Well, I've got my I've got my drink, so off you go. Dr. Kelly's body was discovered on the morning of the 18th of July in 2003 in a wooded area known as Harrow Downhill. This was just a mile or so from his home in the peaceful village of Southmoor, which is set within the Oxfordshire countryside. Mm-hmm. Going off on a bit of a tangent now because um, Dr. Already? Kelly, of course, I know, I've only just, just commenced it. Dr. Kelly was interested in local history and a few years before he died, he'd been doing some research into the history of the village and he found out that a poet called Wilfred Howe Nurse had been a former occupant of the house in which he lived, which is called Westfield. And whilst living there, this guy had written a poem which paid homage to Harrow Downhill. Um, so I just wanted to read a verse of the poem <laughs> to give a bit of context because it describes it really oh, okay. well. Um, Sorry lo- for laughing. No, that's okay. Sure and it's it's, it's a location, obviously, where Dr. Kelly ended his mm. life. So I wanted to try and um, paint a picture of it. So here yeah. goes. Don't judge me on my poem, no, poem reciting skills. Go for it. On Harrow Down the golden gorse now flames, while in rich meadows set with many flowers, the cattle graze beside the silver Thames, or seek its shallow cool in sunny hours. Did I do a good job? That's beautiful. I really enjoyed that. Does that paint a nice picture? It does. Good. I like it. So this really was a beautiful corner of the Oxfordshire countryside, but its beauty would be forever tainted by the brutal events that it would bear witness to on the 17th of July in 2003. So although his body wasn't discovered until the 18th of July, it was the day before that Dr Kelly went missing and most likely died. It was on this day that Dr. Kelly set off from his home to either end his life by his own hand or the day in which he would fall victim to a government conspiracy that would see him assassinated in what has been described as a wet disposal. Oh. <clears throat> Have you ever heard that term before? That sounds disgusting. It does sound pretty gross. Apparently it just means that it was hurried and a rushed sort of assassination. Oh, yeah. not that it was actually soggy and damp. Not soggy and damp. So I guess it's just, you know, whoever is assassinating him Does has got to, yeah, has got to do it quickly so there's not much okay. planning. It's a bit of a mess, I guess. Wow. Um, which I think we'll come on to that because it was... So having worked for the Ministry of Defence as a leading authority on biological warfare and formerly as a weapons inspector with the United Nations Special Commission in Iraq, Dr Kelly had the highest level of security clearance and he'd regularly brief the British intelligence services and the CIA and he was actually nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize at some point so he was really at the top of his game and wow, a yeah. real expert in that mm-hmm. sphere. Um, his job was really stressful and um, he would often take long walks in the surrounding countryside, I guess to just gather his 
those thoughts because it's yeah. the kind of job that you just can't switch off from. Definitely. I think he made something like 37 trips to Iraq in his life. He would make trips to other countries. He would work from home. His phone would go and that could be a high up government official. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think he would often go for a walk and collect his thoughts and just get away from it. I think there's a lot to be said for just walking. And yeah. just taking your mind off things. It's like it's mindfulness, isn't it? Yeah. I love walking like home from work because by the time I get home, I just it's completely separate then. It's taking yeah. me a while and it's just nice. So. You can de-stress. Definitely. So the afternoon of the 17th of July was no different. Bidding farewell to his wife, Janice, little did she know that this would be the last time she would see her husband alive. Dr. Kelly had been extremely busy in the months prior to his death, consulting with a number of authorities on a paper which would ultimately lead to the invasion of Iraq. The document was called Iraq's Weapons of Mass Destruction, the Assessment of the British Government, and it was also known as the September Dossier. It was published by the British Government on the 24th of September 2002, I guess that's why it's called the September Dossier. Um, And all all MPs were recalled to Parliament that very same day in order to discuss the contents of the paper. So it was a big deal. They recalled everybody to Parliament to, to debate it. So the dossier formed part of an ongoing investigation by the government into weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And it contained a number of allegations that Iraq did possess weapons of mass destruction, including chemical weapons and biological weapons. And the crucial part was that these weapons could be deployed within 45 minutes. I think what's really interesting is now, knowing what we know now, knowing that there was nothing yeah. there, and it, it's quite chilling to hear that was what was stated in this document. Yeah. That's why we went there. And again, we'll come on to that in loads more detail because that is the crux of all the events that yeah, followed. Absolutely. You know, obviously the bigger picture of us going to war, but the um, the kind of chain of events that it then put David Kelly on. Mm. So this particular statement was contained in a foreword that was written by the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair. And basically it caused mass hysteria at the time, and I Mm. I do remember this. So lots of national newspapers were carrying front page headlines that uh, were, you know, saying things like 45 minutes from doom. So it it really did incite some panic. This claim, a claim upon which the invasion of Iraq was based, proved to be wrong, as you said, Bethan. Mm. And David Kelly had not felt comfortable with its inclusion in the dossier. Dr Kelly had apparently said that the 45-minute claim had been included following the intervention of Tony Blair's Director of Communications, Alistair Campbell, against the wishes of the agencies involved in producing the paper. Mm. So I'm going to refer to this um, dossier as a dossier, a paper, a report, but it's all the same thing. David Kelly was a principled man and he felt that he had no option but to leak this information to a journalist. As we know, people that work for the government, Ministry of Defence, people that are high up often have a relationship with journalists and it's usually a mutually beneficial relationship where they will leak information for their own benefit and obviously that benefits a journalist. Mm -hmm. And Dr Kelly was no different because he had a relationship with a number of journalists and um, he shouldn't really have done that because a lot of those relationships weren't cleared through the Ministry of Defence for whom he worked. They wouldn't clear them because they've got their own agenda as well. So it's difficult, isn't it? It's a real grey area because he's trying to do the right thing by going to the papers, but then obviously the government would want him to go to the papers. Yeah. So David Kelly had previously been quoted in articles as a source, mm-hmm. um, not named, so as a source of information. So he was fairly well connected and he decided to tap up one of these contacts, a guy called Andrew Gilligan, who was a BBC journalist who we'll be hearing a lot more about um, in the next few minutes. 
Through a course of action that would start a chain of events that would ultimately sound the death knell on Dr. Kelly's life, the two men arranged to meet in the bar of the Charing Cross Hotel in central London on the afternoon of the 22nd of May in 2003. Although he denied it pretty much until his dying day, it has been proven that Dr. Kelly passed on two crucial pieces of information during this meeting. One, that the controversial claim in the dossier that the weapons could be deployed within 45 minutes had come from a single source. Mm -hmm. So that's not good. Usually it would be verified, yeah. Mm -hmm. And two, that the intelligence had come in late. So again, there is a concern that they've not had a chance to check that it's accurate. They've just rushed in. So basically he was saying the claim couldn't be trusted and this is why he was so uncomfortable uh, with it being included in, in the dossier. One week after their meeting, Andrew Gilligan went public with his story in a live telephone call to Radio 4's current affairs programme today. Massive fan of that programme, it's really Love good. Radio. Love Radio 4, yeah. Speaking to the show's presenter, John Humphreys, from his home in London, he said that the 45-minute claim had been included in the dossier even though the government knew it was probably wrong, which is disturbing. Yeah, it is, but then, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. No, there's probably all sorts of things that go Um, down like that. But, yeah, it is. It's disgusting because it really terrified people. Like you said, there was all these headlines of 45 minutes from everyone's going to die. It's just terrifying. And you do, I know they say, like, you shouldn't believe everything you read, but you will, just if you oh, read yeah. something... If it's on the front page headline, in, a, in a newspaper that you buy every day and trust. Yeah, you're going to believe it. Yeah. So um, he said that originally this dossier didn't really contain much information, but in the weeks before its public publication, Downing Street had ordered it to be sexed up. I hate that phrase. <laughs> and, so gross. and new facts <laughs> needed to be discovered to make it a bit more exciting. He also said that the 45-minute claim had only appeared in the dossier in the final week, that the intelligence had unusually, as we said, been single-sourced, and that it had been included against the wishes of the intelligence agencies. Yeah, because that's the thing. I can't just turn up to the government and say something and they put it in a dossier. It's just fucking stupid. Yeah. Andrew Gilligan described his source for the story as one of the senior officials in charge of drawing up the dossier. So he did He did withhold David Kelly's name, obviously, but I suppose it did allude to the fact that it's somebody that's quite heavily involved and there's only so many people that were mm. involved. But Andrew Gilligan said that he had agreed that specific term with David Kelly and David Kelly was happy with that. Also, you kind of have to say it's come from someone official. You can't do a Radio 4 interview... I yeah. reckon this. Saying a bin man told yeah, me or whatever. So yeah, so I think he did have to say that someone high up, otherwise no one's going to believe it. Yeah. In a second broadcast to the Today Show later that morning, he toned down the language, saying the 45-minute claim was questionable rather than wrong. Okay. But despite toning it down, the media went wild for this story, and it became clear that it was going to spark a huge political storm, both mm. here and abroad. Absolutely. Alistair Campbell was on his way to Iraq with Tony Blair to visit the British forces and he was furious. If Andrew Gilligan's claims proved to be true, his integrity and political reputation would be in tatters. Mm. Although Alistair Campbell issued a furious denial on the government's behalf, the story was given some credence when the armed forces minister, a guy called Andrew Ingram, said the 45-minute claim had come from a single source and therefore had not been verified. Mm. Over the following days, more denials were issued by Tony Blair and his government, but the story just wouldn't go away, and Tony Blair's integrity was being called into question on a daily basis. So there were now front-page headlines calling Tony Blair Blyer, which I loved. Um, And also, there were then satirical cartoons mocking Tony Blair up as Pinocchio. 
um, saying that he couldn't be trusted. That's amazing. So it wasn't wasn't a good time for him at all. I think we should use that cartoon when we put our uh, yeah our description up on in, um, on social media. We could mock one up ourselves. I, I think I might just find the other one because I don't. There might be copyright issues there. <laughs> So, furthermore, Andrew Gilligan added fuel to the fire when he wrote an article in the Mail on Sunday a few days later, where he stated for the first time that his source had named Alistair Campbell as the guy who wanted the dossier sexed up, as the person who wanted this claim included Mm. that hadn't really been verified around the 45 minutes. A short while after the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, which is basically a panel of MPs that has the power to question people around important events, they announced it would be launching an inquiry into the decision to go to war. And if this wasn't bad enough, they announced Andrew Gilligan would be their star witness. Mm. So things weren't looking good. No. On June the 25th, Alistair Campbell appeared before the Foreign Affairs Committee and vociferously condemned the BBC story. He said that it was a lie and he demanded a retraction from the corporation. Despite the BBC facing mounting political pressure from the government to back down, they stood firm, refusing to retract the story, and they stood by their journalist, Andrew Gilligan. So he really chose the right person to go to with this story, didn't he? I think so. This guy was not going to give in without a fight. No. So the BBC and the government were now basically at war. 75 miles from Dr Kelly's home in Oxfordshire, fevered speculation was mounting in the corridors of power in Whitehall and internal inquiries into who may have been the source of the leaked information were really starting to gather momentum. Following this revelation, Dr Kelly was summoned to an interview in Whitehall. However, deciding to take matters into his own hands, he wrote to his line manager at the MOD and he admitted that he had met Andrew Gilligan Mm. but denied that he'd named Alistair Campbell as the person responsible for initiating the sexing up of the dossier. Such a gross... It is, yeah. It's disgusting. (laughs) He said that he believed that Andrew Gilligan must have had another source or he'd embellished his account of their conversation. Mm. Another interview was arranged for the 4th of July, this time with the MOD's Director of Personnel, Richard Hatfield, and Dr Kelly's line manager, a guy called Brian Wells. At this meeting, Richard Hatfield accepted Dr Kelly's account of his meeting with Andrew Gilligan, but reprimanded him for being in contact with not just Andrew Gilligan, but a whole host of journalists, Mm. which hadn't actually been cleared by the MOD, as we'd said earlier. It's quite good, though, that they're believing what he has to say. Yeah, at this point, they're they're totally behind him. Mm -hmm. So as far as those present were concerned, this was the end of the matter. However, elsewhere in Whitehall, important people had other ideas. Defence Secretary Jeff Hoon had passed the news to Downing Street that an official had come forward who could be the BBC source and he immediately passed this information on to Tony Blair who made it clear that Dr Kelly needed to be re-interviewed at once. Shortly after this on 7th of July the Foreign Affairs Committee's report on the Iraq War was published and Tony Blair and all of his kind of government cronies met in Downing Street to discuss how they were going to respond to the report. Um, It wasn't long, however, before their attention was turned to how they were going to deal with Dr Kelly. Now, there were no minutes taken of this meeting, of course, but it was agreed that Dr Kelly should face a more forensic examination Mm. of what he'd said to Andrew Gilligan by undergoing, quote, a proper security-style interview in which all of the inconsistencies could be thrashed out. So we don't know what a proper security-style interview would entail, but I think we can probably imagine... 
At this time, Dr. Kelly was in RAF Harnington in Lincolnshire on a training course, and he was pulled off this course and summoned back to London for this security-style interview. But he did stick to his story that although he had met Andrew Gilligan, he'd not mentioned Alistair Campbell's desire for the dossier to be sexed up. They didn't believe him and forced him to agree, basically, to a statement being released regarding the leak, which alluded to his identity. So they didn't name him, but they didn't really... Mm. Not too much it. to yeah they yeah. didn't really hide his identity very well so it wasn't long before his name was out there in the media and his cover was blown and as a result he was forced to leave his house in order to escape the press lots of talk really around the government wanting to name dr kelly but not obviously naming him mm-hmm. so had they named him then they would have been to blame perhaps a bit more for what happened in the aftermath but i think they definitely did want his identity revealed without actually doing it yeah so I think they'd put a Q&A script together for journalists and it was kind of going round Fleet Street that whilst they wouldn't name him, if a journalist contacted government officials and put the name forward, they would confirm or deny. Wow. So they all but named yeah. him. So the following days were later described by Dr Kelly's wife Jan as a nightmare as they headed down to Cornwall to go into hiding. She later said her husband, who had become increasingly tense and withdrawn in the day since his admission, he was starting to basically turn completely in on himself. Mm. As I'm sure you can understand, it's a highly stressful situation. So Jan Kelly told the subsequent inquiry into her husband's death that he was desperately unhappy and had felt totally let down and betrayed by his employers at the MOD, who she said had given him assurances that they wouldn't make his name public, but they really had done just that. She tried to distract him with visits to the Lost Gardens of Heligan and the Eden Project. Can you imagine though, like how grumpy and upset oh, yeah. and worried and she's like, come look at a plant. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Don't get she's me doing wrong, her best. And also he loved like nature and stuff, so I get that, but can you imagine? She said whilst they were down there, he went ballistic when he was informed by the MOD that he would have to give evidence the following week at a televised hearing of the Foreign Affairs Committee, which was set for the following Tuesday. Wow. Um, so just two days before his body was found. You would feel like... Three days. You're just going to be put on TV and then, put, like, assassinated on TV sort of thing, like, with, with questions, not yeah. really. But, like, God, if someone said to you, we're just going to do this filmed and you're going to answer a load of questions... You know you're getting thrown under the bus. Yeah, he was. I think that's a really good phrase to describe mm. it. Um, he was a scapegoat, really, and it's probably stressful enough being interviewed about your yeah. involvement in the leaking of information, but having to do that on TV mm-hmm. uh, by a bunch of MPs, and they were really, you know, baiting him. Yeah, you know that no one's got your back. So Dr Kelly returned to the MOD on the Monday to be briefed by his superiors on any tricky areas which he might be questioned about by the MPs. One foreign official at the time noted that Kelly is apparently feeling the pressure and does not appear to be handling it well. So, you know, there is probably some basis that he did go on to commit suicide because... You can understand why he would. It's an incredibly stressful situation Mm -hmm. which is then perhaps manifesting itself as depression. And also at the time, like obviously now we know all of this wasn't true, but at the time, that was what everyone was being told. So he might have then started to have doubts, you know, or if I leaked something that's actually really important and is Mm. true. There is footage of his appearance at the Foreign Affairs Committee on YouTube as ever, where Mm -hmm. we go for everything. But he does look really, really uncomfortable and they do put a number of questions to him. And there's lots of hesitations, lots of looking down, not making eye contact. It's really uncomfortable viewing. Mm -hmm. And it's all the more uncomfortable because you know two or three days later 
he is going to be dead. Yeah. So he was clearly deeply uncomfortable when he appeared before the Foreign Affairs Committee on that Tuesday, and his voice was barely audible at times as MPs threw questions at him. He was given a rough ride after he said that he did not believe that he could be Andrew Gilligan's source, as there were too many discrepancies between what he had told Andrew Gilligan and the story that he had then broadcast. Back home in Southmore on Thursday the 17th of July, it may have appeared that the worst was over. So he'd appeared before the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, The worst bit of it was over. Maybe he was just going to dip out of it now and get Mm. back to a bit of a normal life. On that morning, Dr Kelly emailed several colleagues and the emails had been analysed and they were quite optimistic. He was expressing his hope that he would um, soon be back out in Iraq searching for these weapons of mass destruction because although they were never found... The claim that he didn't dispute that there were weapons of mass destruction, he disputed that they could be deployed within mm. 45 minutes, and that was the, the really serious side um, to what was featured in the report. Shortly after 3pm, having told his wife he was going for a walk, Dr Kelly slipped out of the house before setting off towards Harrow Downhill. What happened next is anyone's guess. Reported missing by his wife, the police started searching for Dr. Kelly and his body was found the following morning at 9.20am by two volunteer searchers. They were called Paul Chapman and Louise Holmes. Stumbling upon what must have been a horrific sight with Dr. Kelly's body leaning against a tree, sort of half sitting up, half slumped over, Mm. they could see that he was dead and took care not to disturb the scene or get too close. Calling the police, they explained where the body was, and it wasn't long before a police officer, a guy called DC Graham Co., arrived. At this point, he told them to back far away, and he then stayed with the body for 30 minutes on his own whilst he waited for his colleagues and other people to arrive. Mm. Suspicious. Yeah. We'll come on a, to that a bit more. Just a little bit. Eyewitness statements of others who arrived on the scene shortly afterwards contradicted that of the two volunteer searchers. Um, two paramedics and a forensic pathologist who attended to Dr. Kelly describe him as lying flat on the ground when they arrived. You wouldn't make that mistake. No. You wouldn't say someone was slumped if they were laying flat on the ground. Yeah, so they said his body wasn't slumped, it was laid flat on the ground, so yeah, who'd moved him? Later that day, a shocked Tony Blair, who was on a, a tour of the Far East at the time, I think he was in Japan. Oh, he was shocked, was he? He was very shocked, yeah, apparently. He announced that there would be a police in, uh, a public inquiry into um, Dr Kelly's death, and he faced some really difficult questions at press conference when he was in Japan. I think... Uh, reporter literally shouted out have you got blood on your hands wow are you going to have to resign and Blair just said nothing two days later the BBC issued a statement confirming that Dr Kelly had indeed been the source of Andrew Gilligan's report and there was no other source following week in Baghdad away from the glare of the publicity there was a moving gathering of some of Dr Kelly's former colleagues to remember a man they had known and admired The inquiry into Dr Kelly's death, called the Hutton Inquiry, began on the 1st of August, so pretty much like a week after he was found, and it replaced the need for an inquest, which would have been normal practice Mm -hmm. in such circumstances. So I just want to talk a little bit about the approach that they took there, because it's a really unusual approach. A guy called um, Michael Powers, who's a QC, he's an expert in law surrounding inquests, and he said that the Hutton inquiry had fewer powers than a coroner would in an inquest. So witnesses lying to Lord Hutton couldn't be prosecuted for perjury, whereas if you attended an inquest and you lied, 
and that was then proven, you would basically go to prison. Oh, I wonder why they chose to do that instead. Yeah. Um, also, an inquiry such as this would usually only be considered for major disasters. So we've seen them before with big sort of train disasters, mm. and I think Renfrew as well. I mm-hmm. think there was an inquiry, a public inquiry then. And the reason they do it is because if you did an inquest into every single death, there would be like 70 inquests. Mm-hmm. There'd be a lot of repetition of information. Witnesses would be called multiple times mm-hmm. and it would just cost loads and loads of money. So um, that, that's why the approach is taken when, when it's like a mass death. That's really interesting. I never knew that. I never knew that. Before. I assumed the public inquiry just used things from the inquest or something like that. So yeah. that's really interesting. It takes the place of... So Michael Powers said that it was the first and only time this approach had been taken to investigate the death of a single person. I'd just like to say, Michael Powers... What Great name. name. Great like name. Austin Powers. Amazing. Although the Lord Hutton report was strongly criticised when it was published in January the next year, at the time, few people questioned the conclusion that Dr Kelly had killed himself. Mm -hmm. So it was criticised, but it was more criticised as a bit of a whitewash in terms of the government's involvement Mm -hmm. in sexing up that dossier. The report found that the government hadn't really done anything wrong. So it was more outraged by that than thinking that anything had happened to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. An inquest did open in Oxfordshire before the inquiry, but the Lord Chancellor told the coroner to adjourn it as the Hutton inquiry would take over. The coroner wrote to the Chancellor about his concern of the Hutton inquiry's lack of legal powers when compared to that of an inquest, and um, a coroner has power to basically compel witnesses to attend and give evidence. So the Lord Chancellor did then agree that there could be a further hearing of, of an inquest, but he put loads of limitations on it. So he said it, it's got to be kept short and you can only take evidence in writing. So you can't have people come and give evidence face to face. Because that's more emotive if you see someone's emotions yeah. showing on their face. I think there's other reasons as well mm-hmm. behind that. So the coroner did, did do that and a death certificate was issued and it cited hemorrhage, incised wounds on the left wrist, coproximal ingestion and coronary artery atherosclerosis, whatever that is. I think it was some sort of underlying heart condition that Dr Kelly had, but he was late 50s at the time, so he would have had something. Yeah, it would have been pretty normal. So what, he'd taken pills and then slit his wrist? Yeah, but the Hutton Inquiry had only just started taking evidence, so what was the point of the inquiry when the death certificate had already been issued and established Mm. the reasons for Dr Kelly's death? Three months after the Hutton report had been published, the coroner did consider once again opening like a proper inquest Mm -hmm. on this occasion, but he decided against it because David Kelly's widow, Jan, um, said that she didn't want that to happen. She was kind of upset enough Mm. and didn't want it all being raked over again. Apparently the coroner had additional evidence from the Thames Valley Police, which he kept from the public. And we don't know what the evidence was, but apparently Thames Valley did conduct a thorough investigation and presented evidence to the coroner and to the Hutton Inquiry, but there was no follow-up proper inquest. The It'd be interesting to know like, what, what that was then. Yeah. Not that we'll ever find out. So. I think a lot of the records were sealed for 70 mm. years. Some, some were released with lots of redactions. The Hutton Inquiry took evidence from officials who said that, um, this is really interesting because somebody did come forward and say um, that Dr Kelly had said if Iraq was invaded, he would probably be found dead in the woods. Wow. Which is exactly what happened. That's quite damning. So did he foresee that there were dark powers at work? Or, if we don't go with the conspiracy theory, was he just saying that's where I'd probably go to kill myself? Yeah, 
Could be. Yeah, it's an interesting. It is. Though. It's sort of a fifty-fifty in a lots weird of ways. Way to say it though, you, yeah. you would probably say I'll kill I'll myself. Kill myself. So do you remember DC Graham Co., the guy that stood with Dr. Kelly's body for around about mm-hmm. half an hour on his own? Dodge. He was never questioned on those 30 minutes that he stood guard never Dr. Questioned. Kelly's body. Never questioned. Um, he wasn't called as a witness to the Hutton inquiry, but Lord Hutton has since commented on the apparent contradiction from eyewitnesses, saying that such discrepancies are quite normal. You might be because you're in shock, I suppose, but I feel like you'd know if someone was led down or propped up. Yeah. Discrepancies did trouble the paramedics who attended, however, because 11 months after Lord Hutton's final report, they took the unprecedented step of organising a press conference. Oh, okay, well. The paramedics, Dave Bartlett and Vanessa Hunt, who between them had over 15 years of experience and had attended multiple suicide attempts where an individual had slashed their wrists, said the scene was unusually free of blood. They said how surprised they were with the outcome of the inquiry, saying they can only say what they saw and there didn't appear to be a substantial amount of blood loss either on the clothing of Dr Kelly or the surrounding area. They said they would have expected blood to be all over the place and as that was not the case, they didn't really feel that he died by slashing his wrists. There just wouldn't have been enough blood loss to cause his death. Wow. As, Especially if they've been to so many scenes. Yeah, they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. As we saw before, eyewitness accounts varied, and some of those who attended the scene saw more blood. So the pathologist said um, there was blood, loads of blood, uh, with some soaked into the ground, and the forensic biologist said there was a fair bit of blood. So again, we're seeing some contradictions here. I think that's the thing, semantics. If someone says there's one litre, and someone else says there's one litre and one mil, that is very close, but... One person's idea of a lot and one person's idea of a fair amount is different. Mm. And they're all experts, so so the paramedics, pathologists, um, the forensic biologists, they would know what a lot of blood is. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's going to be subjective in terms of how they describe it. Yeah, definitely. But they're going to know what what they would have expected to have seen. But it's also not an easy, clean crime scene because it's ground that stuff can soak into. I agree. So that's quite interesting as well. And I think for the paramedics to take that unprecedented step of holding a press conference, they must have been They must have been really concerned and they must have been convinced that that's not how he died. You just wouldn't take that action because that probably jeopardised their job. Mm -hmm. You just can't do that kind of thing without, you know, authority. No, without some sort of proof. Yeah. So convinced were a number of prominent doctors and consultants that Dr. Kelly could not have died from slashing his wrists. They, organised by a woman called Rowena Thursby, who campaigns for proper investigation into Dr. Kelly's death, wrote a letter to a national newspaper disputing his cause of death. So they said he absolutely didn't die from slashing his wrists. I think there were 20 of them that put their name to this letter. And that was big news that was published mm. in The Guardian or one of the broadsheets. One consultant who put his name to the letter, a vascular surgeon called John Skur, who specialises in veins and arteries, said that he has never seen anyone die from wrist injuries. He said it is often a cry for help rather than a genuine suicide attempt because it's just not effective. Mm. He also said that if Dr. Kelly really meant to kill himself, then he cut the wrong artery in the wrong way. He said in his expert opinion, Dr. Kelly might have lost a few hundred millilitres of blood, but that's all it would have been. Mm. And that wouldn't have been enough for him to 
bleed to death. Mm -hmm. So what about the painkillers then? We know that he took painkillers, yeah. An empty box of his wife's coproximal tablets was found next to Dr. Kelly's body, but looking at the empty blister packs, the most he could have taken would have been 29 individual tablets. Mm -hmm. A toxicologist who gave evidence to the Hutton inquiry could not be definitive about how many tablets Dr. Kelly had taken, but he said Dr. Kelly had 10 times more than a normal medical dose. But this is interesting, less than what is usually considered to be fatal. Okay. And really, he said, actually, he only had a third of what is normally considered to be a fatal amount. So it was by no means enough Mm. to kill him. And they're painkillers, they're not like blood thinners, so if you then cut your wrist, you're going to necessarily bleed more or anything. Mm. And if they were blood thinners and he'd cut his wrist and he'd done it in the right way, the blood would have splattered up the tree and stuff. Mm. One of Dr. Kelly's close friends, who is a professor of toxicology at Leeds University, of course he is, has studied the evidence submitted to the inquiry. And he said that from his own expertise, it was quite a superficial analysis of that toxicology and therefore not really worth the paper it was written on. They'll do a forensic analysis of whether he spoke to someone in a pub, but they won't look into his death properly. Yeah. Mm. So in the last few days leading up to his death, Um, Dr. Kelly was probably in a bit of a better mood than he had been in Mm -hmm. and he was replying to friends and colleagues who had emailed him because he'd had a rotten time in the run-up to um, the inquiry that he he was at where he was on television and friends and colleagues had been in touch, really supportive emails and he'd been responding to them as he would and um, he was saying that actually, yeah, I want to get out to Baghdad again. So he was making plans, he was definitely saying that he would be going out there again and he he was quite passionate about finding these weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. So why would he have been saying that if he intended on killing himself? Yeah. There is also another fact because his daughter was due to get married two months later Mm -hmm. so again it's a really difficult one because if you're really depressed stuff like that wouldn't really matter if Mm -hmm. you want to kill yourself you're going to kill yourself um but it's just another area of uncertainty it is i think that is the difficult thing though because you see people who've committed suicide and the last few pictures that their loved ones took they look so happy and you wouldn't know and then there's other people where you can completely see the chain of events that have led to them killing themselves is very difficult. I think the fact though that he is making all these plans and saying to people, you know, this is behind me and now I can go back to Baghdad and things like that, that's perhaps a sign that he wasn't planning to kill himself. I think I read something he'd been sort of tending his veg patch mm. in his garden in, in those that's sort of... making future plans. Yeah, and I know that's not a major thing, but he was just kind of trying to get back to a normal sort of life. Mm. And I think he probably was thinking, I can put this behind me now. I really want a veg patch. You need to get a veg patch. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very me. So the Hutton report said that he did feel humiliated and they definitely said he committed suicide. He had suffered from low self-esteem, a loss of integrity, and his job was threatened as well. And I think that's probably all true, mm. apart from the suicide bit, which I don't really believe. I do, I'm open to I do it. I personally, yeah. I'm open to it. So if he was murdered or assassinated, who do we think was responsible? Mm. Did have the hallmarks of this wet disposal that we referred to before. And we've covered some what we think are assassinations and they're usually pretty slick. And this definitely wasn't. So that doesn't mean to say it wasn't an assassination. It was just a hurried and rushed assassination. The government obviously denies that they carry out assassinations, but people think otherwise including Mm -hmm. us but including other prominent people such as the MP Norman Baker Uh, this is a guy who he's a Liberal Democrat MP and he wrote a book 
um, called The Strange Death of Dr. Kelly. Mm-hmm. And he's convinced that Dr. Kelly wasn't necessarily killed by the British government, but he was killed by um, Iraqi government because he knew too much. Okay. And I think in the mid-90s, Dr. Kelly, on one of his many visits to Iraq, had uncovered that they did have um, some bio- bio- biological weapons. Um, and he did mm. get Iraq to admit to that. I think that's a bit coincidental, if it is them, for them to say anything straight after this inquiry. Yeah. You'd expect that to kind of happen if he's just threatened someone in Iraq. Maybe. Immediately after David's death, a number of experts did come forward, a number of other sort of weapons experts, colleagues, friends of David, and they said apparently they were all on an Iraqi hit list. And they were, following Dr. Kelly's death, they they were convinced that he was assassinated by um, powerful people in Iraq. But they started exchanging emails saying, you need to watch your back. Mm. You need to be careful because they've got one of us already. Who's next? But then what I would say with that is, okay, that that is feasible. Why would our British government then not look into it properly? You know, doing such Mm. a very basic analysis of his death doesn't really make sense if, you've got nothing to hide. But I think the easiest option all round is suicide because if the British government blamed Iraq, that could then yeah. harm the sort of relations we have with that country now, which are you know a lot better than they were. Um, so Norman Baker, the MP that I mentioned earlier, has investigated this thoroughly and he has a contact that he'd spoken to somebody in the know, I don't know who it was, who did confirm to him that it was a wet disposal, that he was killed in a hurried way. And this guy, Norman Baker, says that a lot of his email traffic has been interfered with and messages have been half erased when he's received them. He said he also sent a letter to somebody at MI6 and that was interfered with and intercepted arriving four weeks after it was originally posted. Mm. So there are definitely some suspicions around this and other forensic experts have also come forward to dispute it essentially. So a key to whether David Kelly was really suicidal was the state of his mind and the Hutton inquiry heard that he had felt thrown by the committee um, by their interrogation. Um, So the 45 minute point was a statement that was made and got out of all proportion. So there are a number of different theories as to how Dr Kelly's life ended. It could have been suicide, that definitely could have been one possibility. He was under a lot of stress. Yeah, definitely. As many people who could deal with something like that. No, his wife thinks it was suicide, so she has gone Mm -hmm. along with that. Would have known him so much better than anybody else. Yeah, he would have confided in her. Mm -hmm. But it definitely could have been the British government covering something up, wanting to silence somebody that perhaps knows too much. Yeah. What else did he know? Mm-hmm. Had he threatened to reveal some other information that could have put the government's agenda at risk? Yeah. It could have easily been the government. It could have been this wet disposal. It could have been that the government had approached Dr. Kelly with some private information about him. Mm-hmm. So they said, we know this about you and we will go public with that. And he might have felt he had no choice but to kill himself. Mm-hmm. So it's still suicide, but he could have been pushed into it. Yeah. And then finally, yes, it could have been the Iraqi government, people that worked with weapons in Iraq, the army government officials there's a number of different possibilities so we'd be interested again to know what you think yeah we'll put the discussion thread up definitely we want to hear other people's theories it's a a bit of a confusing case at times because there is a a lot of politics in it and Mm. you know really we do just have a guy that's been found dead in a nice wooded area not too far from his home and he's had a really stressful time so on the face of it yeah, yeah suicide absolutely but there is so much more to it and so many people believe that he was assassinated I think that's the other thing is like with suicide, 
would someone in his situation really do it that way? Because my gut feeling would be he's probably got access to guns and to shoot yourself in the head is a lot more of a definite or at least an overdose in his age, like what age he is and that sort of thing. I just, I don't feel like you'd do that. I feel like if you, if they found evidence that he'd had like practice marks on his wrist, Mm. that would be something that would be released, you know, it was definitely suicide because this happened first. It just seems like someone tried to make it look, to me anyway, it looks like someone tried to make it look like a suicide. If it was a genuine suicide, it's a bit of a half-assed affair because he's taken a few of those pills, not enough to kill him. He's cut his wrist. but Superficially. Yeah, superficial cuts really. He might have lost a bit of blood, nothing major. He could have hung himself. That would have done the job pretty quickly. Yeah. trees are solid. But then equally, it could have been cold because even though it's, what? Well, I think it's July, yeah. But it could have been called in the night time and he didn't get found until like nine o'clock in the morning. There are ways that I don't know. I just I personally don't think it's suicide. I think what makes me think it was murder is the way that it's a shit version of a suicide. It's been mocked up to look like a suicide. It's been rushed, hurried. Mm -hmm. And I think that somebody else is responsible for his death. Yeah. So yeah, please do um, share your theories, guys. It'd be really interesting to hear what you what your sort of thoughts are on this. So we just want to say a few thank yous as always. So thank you very much. We have two new Patreon supporters for this week. So we have Louis Pierce and we have Steph Louise. So thank you both so much. Your merchandise is on its way to you. We'd also like to say a massive thank you to Jamie Scammell who sent over a donation. So that was really kind. And obviously, like we said last time, anybody who does sign up on Patreon, it just means we can improve our sound quality, improve our recording equipment, our editing. So hopefully you're seeing an improvement and you're seeing that your money is well spent on us. Um, Thank you as well to everybody who's been getting in touch on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We've also had loads of reviews on iTunes. So I just want to give a shout out to Wendy Wu UK, amazing name, Jade (laughs) B 1996, Andy CP, the true crime enthusiast, our friend Paul there. Thanks, Paul. Jess Carter Outlines. Thank you, Jess. We've got Laurel. We've got Art 2008. I know. Oh, yeah. Snow Lily, Welsh Flinty, Steve, Stevie Cuddles. Thank you, guys. <laughs> we appreciate all of the feedback and we always take it really seriously. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And we will see you next week with the next episode. Goodbye. Bye.